Hello, and welcome to ABS in Mind, the podcast from the staff here at DebtWire ABS. We'll take you behind the curtains of the asset-backed securities markets and the loans that they help finance. I'm Al Yoon, and I'll be hosting today. Hello, welcome to the ABS in Mind podcast. In the past decade, lending outside of the agency space has been relatively slow to materialize, but investors do have something to choose from if they want to take mortgage credit risk. And that's the credit risk transfer bond market, which over the last seven or eight years has grown to, oh, nearly $50 billion uh, just on Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac issuance alone. And few people watch that market as closely as my guest today, Mark Fontanilla, who is president of MF and Company and founder of the CRTX suite of indexes that are widely used by market participants to manage portfolios and other things too. Welcome, Mark. Thanks, Al. I appreciate it to you and DebtWire for having me today. Great. Thank you. Mark, each month you take some time to summarize the market and point out trends that portfolio managers might have otherwise missed. And there's a, sort of a laundry list of topics in your latest uh, rebalancing report, I see. But just wondering if you can start us off today by just talking about the performance in these deals. Any notable changes in the past month that people might want to know about? Sure. Well, I think within the CRT space, there's a number of different places and avenues and strategies that you can employ. Just to give a brief background, the CRT agency benchmark CRT market is made up of several different tranches or structural positions that you can invest in. So you can invest anywhere from, let's say, a single A, triple B, all the way down to a non-rated piece. So anywhere in between, on average, the market is around a double B, single B credit. There's more non-rated pieces that are being issued, sort of like equity, but again, just doesn't carry a rating, but is a bond that pays coupon and eventually pays principal as well. So within this range, when we look at it from an aggregate standpoint, what we've have this year so far through January and February, the CRTX index as a representative of the CRT market is up 1.8%. And in February, it was up 0.56%. So if we actually look at that since the onset of COVID back in March or the end of Q1, where we've had a lot of market turmoil, the CRT market has steadily clawed its way back and to the extent still lags a little bit other broad market sectors like corporate credit and the aggregate indexes uh, that you see out there. So with that, the performance after the COVID crisis is kind of the worst of the market, which was the end of Q1. We see the CRT market, again, clawing its way back. And over the past couple of quarters and through this Q1 of 2001, the performance has been pretty steady. So again, 0.56% in February for year-to-date performance of 1.8%. So put that in context, if you look at the other broad market sectors like treasuries, investment-grade corporates, high-yield Anything that has a lot of exposure, because they're fixed rates and are exposed to the curve, since we saw in the last couple of weeks, a lot of volatility and really a directional volatility where rates backed up and the curve steepened, we see those markets that are that have heavy duration, like investment-grade corporates, who are typically an eight-year duration, or high-yield corporates, which are typically a, a five- to six-year duration, those haven't performed as well as the CRT market, where all the bonds are one-month floating rate resets either to LIBOR or the SOFR rate. 
So with that, uh, the volatility in the CRT market has been relatively less than we've seen in the past month or two in other markets. And what that does is you have broad outperformance. So put that 1.8% year-to-date in context, a lot of other sectors are negative for the year-to-date. So with that said, within the market, there has been some notable rallies and notable kind of laggards within the CRT complex itself. So we talked about there's a range of ratings, a range of structural features or types of classes. So one in particular in February, we saw a good rally or a good you know, kind of market performance in the earliest fixed severity deals. That's a certain type of loss allocation deal. The original CRT deals were issued as fixed severity where losses are passed through based on a schedule versus the actual losses of the reference pool collateral that is referenced by the CRT bond. So that part of the market, again, fixed severity, the earliest fixed severity deals did very well. Now, What's happened is because of that rally, now they look relatively on par with the rest of the market. So I like to look at things on the risk reward versus the carry or how much money you make, you know, from a, a monthly basis. And so to the extent that the fixed severity deals, the earliest fixed severity deals have had a good run, but now they're carrying pretty much what the broader CRT complex is carrying at. And the dollar prices are close to par around 101 handle. What that means is that as far as upside goes, not as much upside because it's they've probably are just reduced to the good carry that they're getting now. Now, from a credit standpoint, when we talk about performance, there's two components, right? There's the market performance or the bond performance, and then there's a credit performance to the extent that you don't incur any credit losses or any interest shortfalls. So from a credit standpoint, the overall market and the reference collateral, all the mortgages in these reference pools that the CRT bonds refer to, the overall delinquency levels month over month has improved steadily over the past couple of quarters or so. So to the extent that we look at February and the performance continues to improve, so almost humanity, I'd say probably the vast majority of reference pool deals their delinquencies, their total delinquencies have incrementally gone down. So month over month on average is about two to 4% better delinquency performance on average from a total standpoint. But within that, you see that the the late stage delinquencies, uh, the delinquency bucket of 180 days and longer, that is the biggest part of the delinquency pipeline pretty much universally, except for the fixed severity deals, the earliest fixed severity deals, which we'll get back to in a second. But for the broader market, the delinquencies have improved. The largest kind of bucket is the longest term delinquencies, which are predominantly around the CARES Act and all the forbearances that are still outstanding. And so what that does is, you know, they're sitting there in forbearance until the forbearance periods end. So that swell causes a lot of back-end delinquencies. However, on the other hand, the losses that actually pass through from typical high delinquencies hasn't come through yet for a number of different reasons we can get into a little later. So all told, credit performance has been improving incrementally. And then the market performance, again, on the same note, uh, positive returns so far year to date and outperformance relative to other uh, major market sectors in the bond market. Okay. Uh, Mark, I want to just go back to what you were talking about regarding the early uh, fixed severity deals. A year ago about, or maybe not quite a year ago, we were writing about how investors were very concerned about these deals uh, in as much as the, they would take write-downs uh, no matter why the 
reason for forbearance. But from what you're saying, it sounds like the, the delinquency numbers aren't terribly high to begin with on these deals. Is that right? Yeah. So early in the in the start of the COVID crisis, the delinquencies across the board had spiked, and that was due to a large scale, broad economic shutdown. And so that affected all deals, all markets, essentially the same way in a very quick manner. So you saw delinquencies spike. And what I mean by spike, they were running anywhere between one to two percent across the entire GSE CRT reference pool complex. And then they spiked to anywhere between three, four, five, even as high as 10 percent. So the earliest fixed severity deals, in other words, the CRT deals that were issued in 2013, 14, and again, those were the earliest ones. Those delinquencies on a relative basis spiked the least amount. So when we say spike, meaning going from, let's say, 1% to 2% to, let's say, 3 to 5%. Now, one of the things that has been a credit positive overall for the mortgage sector, and actually all mortgage credit sectors alike, is the fact that the housing market has been so good and housing volume, housing prices have been very supportive. So if you think about a 2013 or 2014 CRT deal, if you look fast forward to 2020, you're talking about a six to seven year, at least a six to seven year seasoned loan. So if you think about where home prices have been for the last six to seven years, you are able, if you were a homeowner and you were sitting inside of one of those reference pools from the early 2013-14 fixed severity deals, you have a lot of home price appreciation on average to be able to at least cushion or, you know, in the case of worst case liquidations, you have a lot of home equity that was built up. And just as a side note, why that's important, because the GSEs, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the issuers of benchmark GSE CRT bonds, they typically put in their deals a statistical representation which results in a very large swath. In other words, very large pools with anywhere between, we'll call it, you know, 50 to 200,000 loans. So statistically significant. And not only that, but very well dispersed. So a statistical representation. So with that, you know, national trends are important. And because you have this national trend and you kind of a broad exposure there for, again, six to seven years of home price appreciation. And to put it in context, as far as numbers go, if you look at, for instance, the FHFA home price indices, generally speaking, since 2013, each year for the past, you know, six to seven, eight years, home prices have gone up anywhere between four and six percent year over year, according to the national index. So if you think about how much cushion you get with a higher home price and therefore a lower LTV, which would result in, if you had to go to liquidation, you know, less of liquidation loss to that extent, uh, you have a lot of home price appreciation baked in. And Mark, I just wanted to, I, let me interrupt for a second, though. I mean, you were talking about uh, these early fixed rate, fixed severity deals. I mean, they did exceptionally well in the last month, right? But why would they have outperformed other deals in the most recent time period? I mean, you laid out a bunch of reasons why people might like them, but did, it, did anything happen this year that would cause them to outperform? Well, I think it has to do with timing. So to the extent that a lot of the worry in the CRT market was based on the intrinsic worst credits and because the fixed severity deals, and they're called fixed severity again because they apply losses to investors based on a schedule. 
And it's not based on actual losses. So in other words, if you lose money on a mortgage loan in the reference pool, that's passed through directly to an actual loss structure, which is the later form of loss allocation. In the earliest deals, it wasn't toggled by actually having a loan go into default and liquidation. It was toggled by or turned on by a loan hitting a delinquency threshold. And that delinquency threshold was going 180 days delinquent. So that's why it presented a, uh, a little bit more of an intrinsic credit risk because all you needed to happen is loans go to 180 days delinquent in fixed severity deals for it to basically go into you know, determination how much of a loss there would be. Whereas in an actual loss deal, you wouldn't have that. If someone was delinquent for 180 days, you wouldn't take a loss or start to look at calculations for a loss at that point. It would be based on the actual experience. And typically the turnaround time and liquidation time is longer than six months. And because we had the CARES Act, which provided for mortgage uh, borrower forbearance, that extended that timeline. And so it put the fixed severity deals with that delinquency threshold more at risk than loans that didn't have that fixed severity schedule as their loss allocation. Okay. But they're not so much at risk now just because of what we see in terms of the overall delinquency levels? Right. So a couple of things you have with the fixed severity deals. One, because a lot of the loans that had reached that 180-day delinquency mark had been assessed for the fixed severity loss allocation calculation, a lot of those loans that were originally forbearance loans at the beginning of the COVID crisis have basically exited the reference pools because they became 180 days delinquent. It was assessed for application of loss allocation, and then they left the pipeline. So what you are left with is a relatively cleaner reference pool of loans that were left and the other thing is with the crisis going on, you would think that you would have this constant, we'll call it a replenishment of freshly delinquent loans, even to replace the loans that ex exited the fixed severity delinquency pipelines, but you didn't see that. So in other words, they got swept out or cleaned up, quote unquote, in the fixed severity deals once they hit 180 days delinquent and assessed for any type of loss allocation. And then what came in on the other side, as far as new delinquencies, we didn't see that tick up at all. So right now, just to put it in magnitude perspective, right now, the total delinquency pipeline in the most of the, if not all, the early fixed severity deals is anywhere from less than 1% to less than 2%. So all, basically back to where it was before. Um, Mark, let me take you uh, back to something else uh, that you mentioned too. You mentioned uh, forbearances and the CARES Act. There have been some recent uh, policy issues that have interested our market, and that uh, uh, the most recent one is uh, an extension of uh, foreclosure moratorium by the FHFA and, and HUD too, I guess, by the way. But I'm just wondering, what do you think that'll mean for performance uh, in CRT going forward? You know, there's positives and negatives to that for various different reasons, but I think on a net basis, that's a positive. So to the extent that from a social standpoint, the folks that have been in trouble and we're still not quite, you know, we still haven't quite reopened the economy, we still haven't gotten on the other side, whatever that may be in this COVID pandemic. So to the extent that those who are still having trouble, those who remain in forbearance and having trouble making their mortgage payments, this extension allows them more relief 
And by nature, that would normally be like when you extend the liquidation. So normally you would go into some type of loss mitigation, liquidation scenario. We'd say, okay, let's assess. Do we foreclose? Do we do a deed and lose? So on and so forth. In this case, since you're delaying that, you're giving the borrower more time to catch up or, you know, kind of withstand the uh, the brunt of this COVID crisis. And not only that, but, uh, you know, kind of we talked about before home prices and housing activity, because that's so brisk and home prices keep going up, that to the extent that you're not getting penalized from, you know, the, your liquidation economics by extending that. So again, it has a social good, it has an economic good. And, you know, the other thing about who would pay for these extensions to the extent that uh, based on what the Fannie and Freddie, the GSEs have done so far, they've been able to help not only borrowers, but servicers manage the financing and the economics through this. So it actually uh, seems like a win-win from a credit standpoint. So this extension for all intents and purposes is relatively good for credit performance. And then one more thing on the flip side is that because rates, mortgage rates are still so low and prepayment speeds are historically very high, when I mean high, they're in the, let's say 40 to 45 CPR range. On the flip side, while you're not passing through liquidations, any losses by people going through the foreclosure process and losses allocating to or what what may allocate to CRT structures, uh, the prepayment speeds on the other side are very fast. So therefore, think about it like this. If someone pays you back, then they can't default. So that has been a positive while this extension is going on. So, so to the extent that you have almost like I wouldn't call it a perfect storm, but things that are aligning to have all these bits and pieces be supportive for mortgage credit. Now, a lot of a lot of investors do tell me that they they buy CRT for the deleveraging story. The uh, the front pay pieces pay down relatively fast, and uh, maybe even faster recently, just because of uh, rates and prepayment speeds. But uh, from what your data show is the pace of deleveraging changing at all? I mean, rates are rising. I mean, that was the big story of the past week anyway. I mean, not that that's going to affect CRT immediately, but uh, what are your thoughts on that issue? Yeah, I think uh, I think as far as the deleveraging story, it's pr- it will likely continue. And that's actually a very good strategy to take advantage of that deleveraging. So let's do a couple of comparisons. One of the CRT structures versus, let's say, investment grade or high yield corporates. Those are either callable or bullet bonds. And CRT structures, just like other mortgage-backed securities, are amortizing. So you do have this delevering process over time where the credit risk and the structural leverage so assuming that there isn't a massive deterioration or losses in the structure will get better over time. So this is an incremental positive. And so the deleveraging means that you'll have more cushion or more enhancement for your for your specific bond within a structure, which gives you more support against possible losses. And then also, too, you're shortening your duration as well. So again, we brought up some things like prepayment speeds, home prices. Those help to delever even faster. So the deleveraging story in the COVID era is actually happening faster. And part of that also, too, is the fact that we talked about losses, high delinquencies or relatively high delinquencies, but the losses aren't coming through, which is the kind of the counter to deleveraging. So you can't delever if you start to lose, you know, take losses in the structure. It 
counteracts the deleveraging that prepayments would introduce. But you, what you have here is, again, the uh, things that are aligning to allow the fast prepayment speeds and no actual realized losses moving through help to delever the structures faster than normal. Okay. Um, Mark, just uh, moving on, just in the interest of time, I wanted to talk to you about uh, you know, what your thoughts are on relative value in the market based on the performance that you've seen over the past month and not sure how much you want to talk about, you know, what's been happening in the market, you know, in terms of price movement, but I mean, spreads have been moving out a little bit. Um, just wondering if you could put that in context with your relative value uh, ideas and rebalancing report. Sure. I think one important thing to note is that we net net spreads are still tighter year to date than even with the most recent spread widening. And that spread widening really coincided with a lot of the uh, market volatility and the backup and steepening of the curve over the past two weeks. So put that in context, the 10-year, for instance, is higher by, I want to say it's 30 basis points, the five-year is 20-plus basis points. And so that curve steepening and the higher rates, what that does is it puts sectors like that are fixed rate, for instance, like investment-grade corporates and high-yield corporates, the yields, the required yields just went up. So relatively speaking, whereas the coupons in the CRT market, again, we talked about them being floating rate based, either off one month LIBOR or SOFR, they're not as exposed to the curve necessarily or as directly. So to the extent that one side of the bond market, let's say corporates and high yield or treasuries, for instance, are the rates are higher, required yields are higher, the market is steeper, the longer you go out on the curve. So you start to look at those nominal yields versus spread, but you're looking at nominal yields and they're getting higher relative to the CRT market. So you want to, you can look at it as the recent activity in the more liquid parts of the market or the broader parts of the market have kind of dragged the CRT market up, which widens spreads out. Okay. So in other words, in other words, I mean, the, the, the widening isn't CRT specific. It's not because somebody woke up and decided that they didn't like the market, right? Right. It's not a credit event. It's it's a relative value comparison. So if you look at CRT, again, we talked about ratings from at least new issue ratings, anywhere from triple B down to single B and then non-rated. You align that, you can align that at least the higher rated classes with the investment grade market and the lower rate classes with the high yield market. So as a comparison, equal or equivalent ratings you see that, you know, as and this happens with a lot of markets, uh, especially in bonds, where the yields over on one side of the market get higher. So then all of a sudden money moves, you know, kind of back and forth because there is that relative value play. Now you might have a, uh, you might have taken a hit for that, but to the extent that rep repositioning and rebalancing goes on all the time, this is, uh, you know, one of those technical effects that you see, uh, I think that drag the uh, CRT market with the latest volatility move. Okay. And then what are some of your ideas for the uh, the next few weeks in terms of possibly smart trades to put on? So I think with this recent move, there's always opportunity with recent moves. So as things get uh, you know richer and cheaper, relatively speaking, there's opportunity. So given that we have higher, you know, wider spreads, higher nominal yields, I would say looking at CRT in the uh, in the classes in the bottom of the capital structure versus investment grade, let's say triple B and then high yield down. I would say the M2s, CRT M2s and Bs 
generally speaking, versus their IG high yield equivalents, I would say CRT, now that we've kind of repositioned everything, at least currently, still has some relative value given we talked about the positive mortgage you know, credit performance and the continued delevering. So for if yields were equal and spreads were equal across, let's say, the unsecured markets versus the CRT and collateralized markets, remember, you have this delevering. So to the extent that you don't have losses coming through, you leverage for the same returns and the same yield and same spreads. And the other thing too is because CRT is not as, as exposed to movements in the curve or not nearly as sensitive to movements in the curve from a market value standpoint, um, there's lower volatility in the CRT market. And so that uh, I think it's a, if you want to look at it as a more defensive, uh, you can look at the CRT market for that, leaving liquidity aside. And so finally, also too, the dollar handle. So the dollar handles in the CRT market generally have settled in around the 101, 102 handle range. If you look at uh, IG and high yield, they're uh, you know in the 105 to 108 range. So from a callable standpoint, you know into a backup, you have more risk there as far as that's concerned. Whereas uh, prepayment speeds, convexity, and all the bond terms, uh, the CRT market from a tactical dollar handle standpoint is a relatively better positioned. So that's just a relative value across sectors. If you want me to go into within the complex, I can do that. So all else equal, you know, this is something that uh, I think is appropriate, you know, in numerous situations, but, you know, to the extent that you compare high LTV deals backed or referencing high LTV pools versus low LTV pools, especially the newer ones, which have very clean entry points. In other words, they haven't gone through the COVID crisis. They originated during the COVID crisis. And as you, you know, I don't know if people remember, but, you know, one of the old adages, the best loans are made in the worst of times and the worst loans are made in the best of times. Well, we've had a really trying time. And so the, the newest reference pools sh- uh, are of better credit quality and going into a recovery versus a, a decline. And then high LTV benefits from having MI, mortgage insurance, as the first loss in front of the reference pool and the loan. So all else equal, you, in a number of cases, you know, depending on what tranche or what structural position, um, with high LTV reference pool classes, can get some spread and yield pickup uh, over lower LTV reference pools, generally speaking. I think we have, uh, there's a low LTV Freddie Mac deal in the market right now. I think it's the Stacker 2021 DNA2. And that looks to be, uh, the spreads on that might actually be a little bit wider than the high LTV deal that was out a week or two ago. But I mean, I guess that's just because of the market movements, right? Not because of the deals? Yeah, that's generally, I mean, pricing, remember that these are floaters. So the pricing is struck based on whatever time period it is. So depending on where market levels are, you know, last week, the market yield required yield might be 5%. So the margin and the coupon is struck around that. And then the next week, it could be lower or higher and the coupon is struck around that. And the bonds are still issued at par. So yeah, it's just a matter of market timing and required yields at, the, at that respective time. Okay. And uh, just to close it up, Mark, I'm just wondering if you could give me any thoughts on uh, issuance over the year. I mean, uh, I'm not sure this is something that you put a forecast on, but what do you expect from the GSEs this year in terms of issuance? I think to the, you know, kind of uh, there's what 
you know, what is said and what is done. And so uh, Freddie Mac, their stacker program, they seem to have committed to staying on schedule. And so to the extent that the deals, uh, because of a lot of the refinance activity and the bigger guarantee book um, for both GSEs, uh, there's a lot of reference pool collateral that can be CRT'd, quote unquote. So to the extent that it seems like the pace is the the regular, you know, we're kind of on a regular pace for the whole market in general. Generally speaking, for the past, since the market inception, issuance tends to be anywhere between, we'll call it 11 and, 11 and 12 billion a year. So right now we're kind of on generally, you know, with an earshot of that pace right now, assuming that the stacker program continues to issue kind of in the same pace that they do now. Fannie Mae has been absent from the market for a little bit. So uh, it remains to be seen whether they come back. But again, overall, I think that the float is still relatively large um, to the extent that if you want to look at distribution, right now we're looking at 40, we'll call it 48, 49 billion in outstanding. And that's divided, you know, mid 50s percent fa- uh, Freddie Mac stacker and 45-ish percent for Fannie Mae Cass. So still good representation from both programs. It's just the seasoning and the newness of issuance, um, the patterns uh, for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, their cast and stacker program respectively have diverged in the past year. Okay. Uh, by saying Fannie Mae has been away for a little bit, I think that's being g- generous because it has now been more than a year. So um, how fast a year goes by, right? <laughs> oh yeah. It seems like only yesterday. And yes, that is true. The last, the last, um, cash deal that was issued was the 2020 RO2, which actually closed uh, last February. Mm-hmm. And that was the last cash deal that was issued. Right. So I think it's fascinating that uh, we're still on a pace of relatively brisk issuance with a single GSE issuer out there. I mean, we do have other kinds of CRT that we didn't get into on this podcast, but uh, still, it's a fascinating thing, I think. Yes, I agree. Well, Mark, uh, thank you so much for your time. I'm going to uh, close it up here. We're, we're at our time limit, but uh, I'd love to have you back here on the podcast. I will, probably won't bug you every month, but uh, maybe mm-hmm. maybe a few times a year to come back and uh, talk about uh, the, the state of play in the market, as it were. Yes, and thanks, uh, thanks for having me, and hopefully everyone enjoyed today's podcast. Great. Thanks, Mark. I'll talk to you later. Take care. Thanks for listening to ABS in Mind. If you're hungry for the skinny on asset-backed bonds, residential and commercial mortgage debt, consider DebtWire.com or just tune in here next time. Also look to us on social media. 